Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Fever Dreams listeners, as the august Will Summer told you in last week's episode, He is taking a much-needed hiatus right now. Don't worry, he'll be back in due time in just a few weeks. But we have a treat for you on this episode. I'm introducing to you the return, the reinstatement, the revitalization of the Kelly Weil era. Kelly, how have you been? I've been great. Uh, I'm really looking forward to my restoration here uh, and, frankly, cleaning up Will's messes. (laughs) Okay, what's the number one, number two mess you got clean up what are the reforms that we should expect as you as forever queen of the fever dreams hosting duties militant hardline vegan socialism of course uh, so that, that that's mandatory now for our listeners no <laughs> uh glad to be here it's so good to have you here and before we get uh, started on everything else you have an upcoming book to plug please plug away Tell our listeners what it's all about and where they can expect to see you either in person or virtually given, you know, Omicron right now. Yeah, that's right. So I have a book coming out next month on February 22nd. It's called Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture and Why People Will Believe Anything. It is about uh, the Flat Earth movement and some of the delightful conspiratorial characters that we talk about on this show all the time. Uh, I'm going to be uh, IRL, hopefully, at the Strand Bookstore on February 21st. And then on the 23rd, I am going virtual at DC's Politics and Prose with our own uh, Will Summer. So a bit of a reunion tour there. How long is this book in the making? I, I've heard you talking about the idea of pitching this book and getting the fucking thing actually researched reported and written for how long at this point? Oh, dude, it's hard to say what when the actual origins of this book are. A lot of it has its uh, roots in a piece that I wrote for the Beast in, oh, I want to say November 2018, when, uh, when my editors <laughs> sent me off to a Flat Earth conference and it was absolutely the weirdest thing I've ever done. And I had, you know, I knew I had about 50,000 more words there. And yeah, so I've been kind of mulling it since then. Got the contract in summer of 2019. Things got a little weird after 2019, as you can recall. So it's been in the works since then. Um, I've been writing and researching to the best of my ability, given a weirder and uh, less travel-friendly world, but I'm really stoked with how it came out, and I'm really excited to share it with people. So, hold on. I don't want to 
change our listeners who may be in or around the New York City area. Explain where the Strand is and what it is if they feel like braving the pandemic or whatever is going on uh, by next month at that point. Uh, how many drinks are you expecting to buy each fan who shows up? <laughs> Oh man, I've got to, I've got to think about my drink budget there. The, the Strand is a kick-ass bookstore in Manhattan. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I am not sure their drink policy, but you know what? You, we we get the whiskey and you know a little to-go gallon thing, and uh, we'll see how that divides out among everybody who shows up. Anyway, moving on real quick, Kelly. Have you started hearing more and more in recent days how much Biden is just like Trump? Do you get what I'm talking about right now? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely the same thing if uh, two presidents are peripherally mean to a reporter who asks a dumb question at a press conference. Is that right? <laughs> right. Or just, I, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg on the, this point. Kelly is, of course, referring to how uh, Biden was caught on a hot mic early this week calling Fox News reporter Pete Ducey? It's Pete Ducey, son of Steve Ducey, who's also at Fox News. Yeah. Uh, calling him a stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, Biden, of course, is not, not Trump in the sense that almost seconds after he did it, he called Pete Ducey to apologize. So, you know, there you have it. But beyond that, there's a the question of the preservation or the destruction of the current democratic order in America. And more and more and more, I get the sense that there are way too many overfed, overpaid, overcoddled political commentators, pundits, and uh, mainstream national political columnists who are paid to either on purpose or accidentally explicitly not understand the difference between X and Y. There is a certain clique of mainstream elite Beltway or Manhattan column writing where the objective seems to be, I am not going to understand the key and clear distinctions and differences between a thing and a completely different thing. That is what I'm going to get paid to do, and that's what I'm going to do it. In this case, what I'm talking about is I cannot tell you how many times over the past few days or week or so that I've heard this shit about how Biden is just like Trump when it comes to quote-unquote delegitimizing the concept of modern-day American presidential elections. Uh, this is uh, particularly started more and more and more when after Biden made his speech on voting rights in Georgia and then at his remarks at a recent press conference. Take a listen. In, in regards to 2022, sir, the midterm oh, 2022, election. I mean, uh, imagine if those uh, attempts to say that uh, the count was not legit. You have to recount it and we're not going to count. We're going to discard the following votes. I mean, sure, it, 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 I'm not saying it's going to be legit. It's the increase... And the prospect of being illegitimate is in direct proportion to us not being able to get these these reforms passed. But I don't think you're going to see, you're not going to see me, and I don't think you're going to see the Democratic Party give up on can go, coming back at assuming that the attempt fails today. I also cannot possibly count how many people, particularly partisan, cynical Republicans, including, of course, Mitch McConnell, are using this essentially to say Biden is the real delegitimizer of U.S. elections and American presidential elections. I mean, this is just really red team, blue team analysis, right? It's like they can't discuss an active threat without describing an equal and opposite counterbalance. And that's not at all what's happening. You have 
a party that is making central to its platform the delegitimization of our elections. There's more coming out every day to the extent that it's not even getting that much attention. It's become so momentous and almost mundane at this point. All this evidence of Trump trying to manipulate the election, trying to cast it aside, trying to put pressure on local officials to swing it his way. And to try and counterbalance that with a speech that Joe Biden made about voting rights of all things is just, if it weren't so cynical, it would be the dumbest thing you could possibly compose on paper. Right. It can be a little bit of column A and also a little bit of column B on the cynical to dumb ratio. And also, we're not just talking about what Trump did in late 2020 and early 2021. The Republican Party on the local, state, and national level, it is dutifully continuing his legacy on that and expanding on it. Oh, actively. I mean, you talk to you talk to any local Republican Party and they are actively trying to push legislation that makes it more difficult for people to vote. Right. They're rolling. Yeah, they're rolling back like ballot drop boxes and you know, conveniently, all the drop boxes are like in neighborhoods of color. I mean, right. Closing it down in black neighborhood and saying, oh, you're the racist for thinking this is racist. <laughs> right. Right. It's just absolutely mind blowing. And I've been talking to former Republican officials in local parties who actually ha- take issue with this kind of thing. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've been I've been cast out, man. I've been purged. You know, this is like code red for this party. And to see it compared to just these tepid remarks that Biden is making is just it. it blows my brain. Right. We've talked about this quite a bit on this podcast before, but exactly what you're talking about and anti-vaccine or anti-vaccine mandates, those are the two animating principles of the Republican Party right now. Like that might make up, I don't know, maybe 97, 98 percent. There's a little bit of wiggle room for, I don't know, a tax cut or two after that. But that that is basically it. If you are trying to define the modern day American Republican Party. And it sounds like we're being simplistic here, but uh, we're not. It just happens to be that simple. And to illustrate the sort of both siderisms we were bitching and moaning about earlier, I want to read a little bit from this op-ed that was published at TheHill.com Tuesday morning, authored by a guy named Joseph Bosco. The title of it is, quote, Trump and Biden should stop denigrating U.S. elections. Are you strapped in and ready for this one, Kelly? Never been readier. Let's go. (laughs) Some Democrats have expressed concern that Biden's preemptive allegation... (laughs) Okay, citation needed. Some Democrats. (laughs) Some Democrats have expressed concern that Biden's preemptive allegations of election fraud uncomfortably echo Trump's incessant claims and could have the effect of suppressing voter turnout as Republicans discovered in Georgia. Yet, since both parties have now expressed similar concerns, an independent bipartisan review of perceived problems and potential solutions would seem in order. (laughs) Bosco goes on to scribble. Trump has urged Republicans to boycott the 2022 and 2024 elections if his 2020 defeat is not overturned, which would reprise the Georgia fiasco potentially across the country. In his Atlanta speech and subsequently, Biden did his part to undermine public confidence in America's elections. Both men's reckless charges bolster the argument of Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin that Western democracy belongs on the ash heap of history and quote. 
Wow. I mean, that is, if nothing else, that is literary. You know, you want to, uh, it's, it's, it's poetic. No, it's, it's nuts. It reminds me so much of the uh, debates going on in school boards right now where there is one side that is trying to point out racism and the other side that says, oh, you're, you're pointing that out. Why are you bring race into this? Why are you being so alarmist? Why are you trying to uh, put down our schools? Critiquing an issue is not creating that issue in itself. And it's so maddening to see what is honestly, I think, kind of an insufficient response to this Republican attack on election integrity. And to see that made into some equal and opposite concern of itself, it's its not at all what is happening. Did you ever watch Mr. Show when you were growing up? No. Okay, there's this uh, <laughs> Mr. Show sketch called, like, the Fairsley difference. And there's this mom and pop style market chain that says something very lightly, somewhat critical of a major supermarket chain in the area called Fairsley. And then it's a whole bunch of ads that the Fairsley supermarket change cuts targeting this business, basically accusing it of being riddled with pedophiles and child sex traffickers. Oh, no, I think I have seen this. It's like, we cannot comment on the allegations that our opponents have asbestos in their cereal, like that kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. And their, their apples are riddled with poison and razor blades or, or something like that. Sure, Gibbons Markets may save you a dime on select items, but this week at Fairsley Foods, all our produce is 25% off, and you'll never find a rat. Good prices, no rats. That's the Fairsley difference. This week at Gibbons Markets, we're having our Harvest Time Red Tag Sale. All red tagged items are 40 cents off. Oh, and just to let you know, we've never had a rat here at Gibbons. I, I don't know what that was in reference to, but uh, if you're looking for savings, look to Gibbons. That's a perfect illustration of what the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, the Republicans obviously being fairly in this case, how each of them are not even playing the same game here. <laughs> it's the old rap fucking thing, right? Where you say, well, I'm not going to comment on the allegations that my uh, my political opponent had sex with a pig. And now, okay, now that's the narrative, right? Now you've got to waste your whole week trying to debunk, debunk the pig sex thing when it never even happened. And it's, it's just such a waste of everyone's time and intellectual energy. And that's exactly what Republicans want, right? As you said, there's no real platform going on right now except just petty grievance. And just to wrap this up, I mean, there are a million reasons why this doesn't hold water to anyone who is looking at this through a non-fucking moron lens. Just to pick one at first, until Biden or any other major Democrat politician like Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer has a ghost of a chance of leading a horde of rioting doofuses to Washington, D.C. to keep a politician in office illegally, body count be damned, this particularly hideous whataboutism is missing all the major points. And to be fair, the people who are currently missing these points are oftentimes doing so intentionally. They are being obtuse completely intentionally. All right. And speaking of dipshits, Kelly Weil, <laughs> you have some new reporting on what is going on with RFK Jr. and his anti-vaxxer ilk. 
Tell me more. Right. So this is RFK Jr. This is everyone's favorite Kennedy cast out. And for the past decade or so, he's been pretty vocally anti-vax. But this moment has really hit pay dirt for him. And he's become the leader of this anti-vax scene. So this weekend, he was a keynote speaker at a, quote, anti-mandate rally in D.C., anti-mandate being the new talking point for people who are already not going to get vaccines anyway and oppose other people getting vaccines. It's just window dressing on a very tired and, at this point, deadly ideology. But in his speech this weekend, RFK Jr. Uh, decided to compare himself and other anti-vaxxers to Anne Frank, a Jewish teenager who died in a Nazi concentration camp. Of course. I mean, who more persecuted than him? And he says, quote, even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps to Switzerland. You could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. Today, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so none of us can run, none of us can hide. He he can move. He can emigrate. Yes. Yeah, well, why not Switzerland? But Go to Brazil. (laughs) Go to Bolsonaro's Brazil. What's stopping you? Clearly, he's he's being kept in place by repressive laws that uh, bar his emigration. Uh, but, But, I mean, leaving aside how offensive this comment is i just it's it's so bizarre to pick those two examples for me because anne frank was famously killed she and her family were taken from the attic they were taken to a concentration camp where the children died so that that's a terrible analogy and then my other point of contention here is crossing the alps to switzerland isn't that just the plot of the sound of music oh spoiler (laughs) Spoiler alert. Come on. Uh, Well, listen, you've had about 60 years to see it. So I feel I feel like that's in safe territory. The only version of that movie I've seen in full is the Carrie Underwood version with the true blood vampire. That that is the canonical um, uh, quintessential (laughs) edition of The Sound of Music. We we love the, the live TV adaptations. Also, I think I remember reading that none of the escape over the mountains actually happened like they already had italian citizenship and they're like yeah now we're just gonna get on a on a train (laughs) and just took a couple trains around europe got out moved to the u.s uh no harm done of course so these comments rightfully got slammed by everybody in a position of authority to slam them the auschwitz memorial the u.s holocaust museum the anti-defamation league all came out swinging saying hey man this is really messed up like you are not and Frank. But this is part of a broader trend of anti-vaxxers being really, really obsessed with liking themselves to Holocaust victims. There is nothing they love more, more so than the water that they drink or the air that they breathe or the food they consume. The thing they need to do more and love to do more than anything else is comparing them to victims of the Third Reich, particularly the Jewish victims of the Third Reich. It is like pathological. Like they've been doing this for a full year. They're wearing uh, the yellow stars on their chest. And Is there like a little photo of a vaccine in the middle? Or, or oh, the yellow star, or is it just the yellow star? <laughs> it varies. I think some of these are homemade, so there's no uh, there, there's no standardized unit of them. But yeah, there's there's the people who go the opposite track and make swastikas out of vaccines to like accuse their opponents of being Nazis. But do they wear the swastikas? They've been carrying them on flags, which I think if you're carrying a swastika flag, you 
already lost the argument. Like I have no further interest in engaging with this. Put it on a placard at least. Don't put it on a flag. You wave a flag as a symbol that you're supporting something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not incredibly well thought out. It's um, it, someone might need to uh, mess with the marketing there. I'm sorry. Just to go back to this Anne Frank thing, it's amazing the level of like self-imposed persecution that this guy is broadcasting for himself. I mean, RFK Jr. right now has one of the top selling books on Amazon. It's a book attacking Anthony Fauci to claim that he is in some way censored or repressed or like a teenager writing a diary in an attic because it's illegal for her to exist in a country. Like, how is that not the most offensive thing you could possibly say on a national stage? It blows my mind. Am I remembering correctly that when Donald Trump was president, he literally appointed RFK Jr. to a commission on vaccine safety? Oh, yo, I do not remember that. That is also the least surprising tidbit. Trump did this, I believe even before he was even sworn into office in 2017. (laughs) Trump was always, at least pre-COVID, very like RFK Jr. adjacent on Twitter, right? He would kind of tweet those like sort of fear-mongery things like, is there a link between vaccines and autism? And of Who's course, to say? not. Shrugging emoji. Right. But it was, it was sort of that pre-COVID vaccine hesitancy that RFK Jr. was so steeped in and now, of course, has turned into this million-dollar enterprise. Right. And Trump, of course, in his post-presidency, is still basically anti-vaccine light in the sense that he and his political operation have spent a lot of time aggressively fundraising off of anti-vaccine and anti-vaccine mandate sentiment. Yeah, he's kind of come around to the boosters and stuff like that, but he said uh, several months ago, speculating in public that, oh, the boosters, I don't know, they might be just a moneymaker for Pfizer. He has he has spent way too much time, not at all, advocating for the vaccines, letting that shit fester on uh, the Trumpian right and in the GOP. So, yeah, we'll, we'll give him, like, I don't know if partial credit is the right term, but it's something maybe smaller than that. <laughs> right. It's so funny, all these, like, pre-COVID connections, because This incident is how I learned for the first time that RFK Jr. is married to Cheryl Hines, the Curb Your Enthusiasm actress. Definitely play that in the background while we're talking. Oh, I love it. No. What what I love is that that show is just so. It's such a Jewish show. It's it's And it's so, so mean to people like RFK Jr. Yes. Yes. It's oh my god. And so those two things are just in such dire conflict for me. And it seems like actually RFK Jr.'s anti-vax work is sort of a point of contention in that family. So After his uh, Holocaust remarks, somebody tagged Cheryl Hines in a tweet, and she replied that, quote, my husband's opinions are not a reflection of my own. While we love each other, we differ on many current issues, which is at least diplomatic. (laughs) I don't mean to seem mildly crude here, but Google image RFK Jr., how did he get Cheryl Hines? 
You know, I genuinely... It's definitely not his brain I think they were introduced by power. Larry David. I think oh. they were introduced by Larry David. Yeah. Oh, fuck, of course. Yeah. Wheels within wheels. This is already starting to turn into like a curbed, a curbed plot. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so so more of this, because I'm, I'm, I'm just so steeped in celebrity gossip right now. Please. So it turns out back in December, the uh, Heinz Kennedy household held a party where guests were encouraged to either be vaccinated or uh, to test. And when Politico called RFK Jr. for comment, he blames the policy on his wife saying, I guess I'm not always the boss at my own house, which is such a snide. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Vaccine cup. No, it's just, it's so... Oh man, just to, to, to snipe your own party like that to be like, oh, my, sorry guys, my wife is making us not all have a super spreader event. You know how it is. Like, just man up. It's the exact same tenor of a guy complained his wife won't let him bowl on Wednesday night. Or- <laughs> sorry, fellas. To scale back here a bit, I mean, these. Holocaust comparisons are really becoming a daily occurrence on the right. And I remember all our favorite characters have done this by now. Marjorie Taylor Greene has, I believe Lauren Boebert has. And you see this from the most annoying person on your local school board, the person wearing the yellow star in the supermarket. It's really losing its potency as um, something shocking. It's really becoming something that you have to contend with fairly regularly. And it's such, to me, a whitewashing of history and this attempt to label oneself with victimhood. And I keep tying things back to these educational laws today, but it strikes me that all this is happening, this whitewashing of history, as there are these new laws prohibiting the teaching of uncomfortable facts of history. It's this bizarre transferal of victimhood when there's really historical, terrible things happening and the wrong people are shouldering all of the, uh, all of the whining, frankly. Right. It's, it's an even more accelerated and debauched version of, uh, Republicans across the board complaining that Obama was like Hitler because he was doing the Affordable Care Act or expanding Medicaid or something like that. I'm actually, now that I'm talking about it and remembering how dumb that was, I'm, Tempted to say they are on the exact same level of dumb. Yeah, it's, it's somehow um, vaccines are reverse racism. No. <laughs> well, on that note, Kelly, uh, do you want to hear who this week's guest is as sort of a palate cleanser from what we've been going over so far? Yes, please. I need my palate cleansed. Of course. So for this week's guest, we have the great Jane Coaston, an alumnus of National Review Online and Vox who nowadays hosts the terrific New York Times podcast, The Argument. Kelly, have you been listening to The Argument recently? Are you a subscriber? I have. I love The Argument. It's the only argument I will actually voluntarily listen to. So props (laughs) to Jane. Love her work. We've been wanting to get her on Fever Dreams for quite some time. So please stick around and check it out. Thanks all. 
Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our guest this week is none other than Jane Poston, the host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. In past and current iterations of her career, Jane has specialized in covering modern mainstream conservatism in America, particularly how it evolved during and after the Barack Obama presidency. You can follow her on Twitter at Jane Coaston and listen and subscribe, of course, to The Argument. Jane, welcome to Fever Dreams. How's it going? It's good. It's good. Thank you so much for having me. First thing I want to get into here, Jane, is that uh, you and I have known each other for quite some time. I think the first time I started picking up on your uh, reporting, your columns, was when you were at NRO, uh, which is, of course, the online outlet for uh, the conservative magazine National Review. I want to get into, very quickly, your own personal evolution, if you think you've had one. Obviously, it's a right-of-center publication, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe going from there to Vox, which is obviously a left of center publication, to now the New York Times. So it's interesting you say that. So I've only actually written once for National Review. I was at MTV when MTV, I was there in 2015, 2016, which led to, I was actually doing on-air coverage for MTV the night of the 2016 election, ah. the weirdest night in the world. For Being MTV. <laughs> yeah, the Times Square on election night 2016 and the subway is one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had in my because life. Because of how fucking sad it was? Well, it was, like, not even, like, sad. It's like if you had a birthday party, but then the person for whom the birthday party was supposed to be for, like, they died in an accident on the way there. And everyone, like, people were finding out, like, over time. Because there were clearly people who knew that Trump had won in Times Square. And they were telling other people. And then I obviously had just been on air doing this live coverage because it had happened over a period of time. But it's like you were watching a real time. Right. Like the moment we all saw that tweet from the AP saying, well, Trump won Pennsylvania. It was like, yep, it's over. <laughs> right. There was also like the weirdness of it being like a very busy weeknight. And just I think there, there was just a combination of elements. Like if I remember correctly, it was a very gray day in New York. And it had been kind of just gross weather-wise all day. The general attitude was just this very strange, like, it was like a weird cloud had descended. Like, it, it's not, sad is not the right word. It's just kind of this strange, like, the mise-en-scene was very weird. So I was at MTV, and I wrote once for 
National Review. It must have made an impression on me because I could have sworn you wrote a lot there. <laughs> no, no. I've written for them once and I've been referred to obliquely multiple times. There's one piece where for some unknown reason, it's me, Jamel Bowie, and Ta-Nehisi Coates who are all like compared to each other. And it's the weirdest thing in the world. If I remember correct, the author was mad because I'm normally more civil, but I was mean. And it's, I can't, I, it's all weird. Anyway, so I, I wrote one piece for them because there had been a lot of talk about, and this is tw- August 2017, and it, it has held up, which n- very few things anyone writes or wrote about Trump from that era do hold up. But it's essentially that, like, there is no such thing as Trumpism. Trump, a lot of things people wanted or feared for or about Trump were just kind of projected onto him. And that, like, you know, somehow he was like the best friend of the evangelicals and he was a dove and he was a hawk and he was like the most pro LGBT president ever or something like that. All the stuff got projected onto him because he just was like, yeah, it was like he was in that annoying um, improv game. Yes. And like you just keep going with whatever it is. But yeah, so I was at MTV and then they pivoted to video and that was bad. So I was freelancing a bunch and that's how I wound up at Vox is I just was writing I wrote for ESPN magazine because I also, um, before I did anything having to do with politics, I wrote about sports. Sports are probably my biggest passion. But in a weird way, I love sports so much that I find it difficult to write about sometimes because it's like writing about emotion. It's the same reason why I'm not a very good music reviewer or food reviewer because I'm like, it's good. It's bad. I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm very impressed by people who can write well about music because it's like right, like trying to describe a color to someone who can't see it. But yeah, so then I then I was at Vox, and uh, from there I was, you know, I started host, co-hosting the Weeds when I was at Vox, and now I'm at the New York Times, which is very exciting. So Jane, at the Times right now, the point of your show is to kind of find friction and often common ground between clashing political views. And we were talking earlier about just this radical shift, it seems, in the Republican Party, and. I was wondering how, in this day and age, you manage to like facilitate those conversations when it seems like we're veering in these really opposite directions quite quickly. I think that um, one of the ways that I like to create those types of conversations, one of the reasons I'm able to create those conversations, is because I think a lot of the, the friction that we observe, specifically on social media and on Twitter, which is probably the social media platform, where I spend the most public time. I'm on Instagram a lot, but nobody wants to hear about that. I'm aware that Instagram has its own problems and lawsuits, but in comparison, I'm like, oh, it's just a sweet land of beauty and people trying to tell you how important it is that you feel good about yourself. Now, I'm aware that that's like influencer talk, but whatever. I think that for me, a lot of the friction that you see on Twitter, specifically among people who are, of the same political class, I think is somewhat performative. And when you get people, one of the challenges we sometimes have in the podcast is that people agree too much. And these are people who are fighting like cats and dogs or we're fostering two puppies right now. So fighting like two small puppies. Don't say anything triggering to them, please. I will not. Right now they are dead asleep um, as they have been for the last hour. In about another hour, they're going to run around in a circle and then, um, you know, go back to sleep because that's what they do. But I I noticed that a lot of times the people who seem to be or are performing these massive disagreements on Twitter, especially when they can do what I would say is kind of a poisonous 
performative call-out culture of like, this person says he's a Democrat, but he's really like a neoliberal shill. When you get them on the same podcast or have a conversation, they just agree about everything. It's more about like how something is being said or how people are having these conversations in public. I think that that's one of the challenges is that like when people are really disagreeing, they're disagreeing about policy but they're also really disagreeing about how that policy is parsed out or how that policy feels. It's like how one thing I keep being struck by is that when I talk to Democrats and I talk to Republicans, both sides think that they always lose all the time and that their opposition always wins and is always smarter and better while also being evil. That is a feature, not a bug of movement politics, though. Right. And I'm just like, you're aware that this can't possibly be actually true. But it feels true. It feels like Democrats never win anything or it feels like Democrats always win everything. There is someone who right, says the married gay couple or something. Right. Exactly. Like there is this idea that Democrats are just in control of all of these things or none of the things. And it just is like it's a view of politics that is really more feelings ball than anything else. And so what I want to do is explore the actual policy, especially the offline policy conversations and differences, because it's not that having conversations about how we talk doesn't matter how we parse out policy is incredibly important. You could have two candidates with the exact same policies, but one of them will say it in a different way and it works or doesn't, depending on how you say it. Can you give us an example of an argument on your show that you hosted recently and uh, what specific two individuals on opposing sides you saw this phenomenon most prevalently? Most recently, it's interesting because it was it was two conservatives. So we had... Charlie Sykes, who's a founder and editor at large of The Bulwark, and Rich Lowry, who's the editor of National Review. And both of them don't think Donald Trump should run for president. Both of them are pretty conservative people on a lot of of issues. Uh, Charlie Sykes has he did uh, conservative right wing radio in Wisconsin for a million years before the rise of Trump. He became kind of an MSNBC conservative with the advent of Trumpism, which is hilarious for me, who have known who Charlie Sykes is for a long time. Anybody who was listening to Charlie Sykes at the dawn of the Obama era to hear him now, it's not like he was a squishy Andrew Sullivan type at the end of the Bush era where it made sense that that particular conservative would become enamored by Obama. Right. That's one of the funny things about how we start to see people who are like the, you know, how Bill Kristol is viewed or how any of these conservative figures are viewed through the lens of people who have been around and paid attention to politics for the last 15 years and how it's occasionally viewed by like cable news and how we think about these, especially because Trump became the fulcrum upon around which how conservatives and conservatism is viewed. But when you take Trump out of the equation on these conversations, you get a lot of people who are it's like they agree on a host of actual policy issues. But it just that for I think for Charlie Sykes, how those policies are being parsed and who's doing the parsing, he now finds anathema in a lot of different ways. And I right. think for Lowry, it's a different equation. And I think that that's something that we see in democratic politics also in which you can have people making the very same arguments, but it just sounds different when it's coming from this one person or it sounds more intelligible or less intelligible when it's coming from a different person. It's almost like a Twitter is built to facilitate small time bickering and uh, 
yeah, partisanship and not actual discussion. Yeah, I think that there is, especially because it's a, it's an interesting type of partisanship in that it's a partisanship that is, again, performative. And it's an, a partisanship that I would argue in many ways is detached from how people actually practice politics. And, and I think it's important to say that it's not that Twitter isn't real. It's that it's a very specific type of real. It's kind of like the outdoor voice and then there's the indoor voice of how we practice politics. And so there are a lot of people, you know, there's been all of this discussion about are we done with COVID? Is COVID over or something like that? And it's like, I don't know what that means because there's the performance of we are absolutely not done with COVID. That seems more about lashing out than talking about what's actually going on here. And then there's the performance of I've been done with COVID this whole time. Again, it's a performance because, again, you are telling people about it on the platform. That's inherently performative. And I think that Twitter is an inherently non-complex platform. It's very difficult to talk about the challenges of like, yes, COVID is extraordinarily difficult for folks who are in, say, institutions and group homes. That's been something I've been thinking a lot about with regard to folks with disabilities, whether those are physical or intellectual, because that's something I started reporting on at the beginning of the pandemic when there were states that still had ventilator limits for people with Down syndrome, for example. But it's still also complicated if, say, I have a friend who's a public defender in Wisconsin and the availability of getting a hearing so that somebody can set your bail was totally scrambled by COVID. And so there are people, I mean, people have been fortunately doing a lot of reporting about what's going on in Rikers or something like that. And it's like, if you can't get out of jail, not prison, if you can't get out of jail because you can't get a bail hearing because COVID keeps pushing out with the availability of a judge to hear your case or a magistrate to hear your case, that's a diff- that's a that's a calculus that has to be included here, too. And it's really hard to say all of that in a way that isn't performative, because I think that there's also the like, oh, I'm the logical one. I'm the smart one here. That that tendency of like, I alone am the only person looking at this through the logical lenses when it's like, no, you're not. You're a person. So I think that that's one of the things I want to do in the show is make things as complicated as they actually are. Um, One of my favorite episodes that we did uh, last year was on um, OnlyFans and sex work. And we had someone who was a sex worker. She's an adult film performer. And she was talking to someone who has been a victim of sex trafficking and currently works to help to get people out of sex trafficking. And they, by the end of it, they had this moment where uh, one of my guests was saying like, well, I've never talked to anyone who's had a good experience in the industry and you've never talked to anyone who's had a bad experience in this industry. And by the end of it, they were like exchanging numbers and having this really nice conversation, one that you could tell they were both very nervous to have. And I think that what I want to do with the show is kind of scramble assumptions about how we talk to each other, because there's a lot of talking about one another and a lot of talking about the other side in this way that doesn't allow for any complexity. And I think that occasionally that that can really turn into both sides of like, well, we're all in this. No, no, we're not like this is things can be complicated and bad at the same time. But I think that scrambling assumptions and getting at, you know, here's 
why these conversations haven't been taking place. Here's what these conversations look like. Here's how they can take place. I think that's really important to me and to the work that I do. Well, you've also done episodes that cover the Republican Party as it currently stands enraptured, both from a policy and messaging and political standpoint, with Donald Trump's big lie. Obviously, that is not something... Uh, I know that's not something that you look at through any kinds of both sides as lens or and the issue is not complicated if you're looking for truth. The truth is that the big lie is, in fact, a gigantic lie. It is in itself a politically convenient hoax for the right. So, so I guess this is sort of a twofold question. First being, having studied the Republican Party for many years, what do you see as the biggest shift in what animates it? its base, particularly in the context of that. Is this just more of the same, but different emphasis on different syllables? And also, when you're talking about trying to bridge divides and sort of re-examine how we talk to each other, how do you handle an issue like that, where for millions upon millions upon millions of Americans and American voters, when you're talking about the big lie, it's, it's as if it's two brick walls talking at each other. There is just not an agreed upon basis of reality in which to negotiate common ground, shall we say. They, they might both agree that the sky is blue, but beyond that, I'm not sure what we're going to get. Obviously, feel free to re- answer the questions in reverse order. So I, I think I'll actually take your former question first. I believe that there was a, as you put it, a different emphasis on different syllables, as you put it so eloquently. I think that the Republican Party viewed Trump initially as an opportunity to try what had not been tried. You saw that with some of the campaigns of different candidates and how how those campaigns shifted to talk about. And you saw this a little bit on um, in the 2020 Democratic primary where there was this idea. There was a really smart piece um, in The Washington Post. There was this idea that now you know we have this opportunity to change everything and everything is going to be different now because 2016 scrambled everything. Every, 2016 scrambled all of our calculations about how politics works. And it turns out that it didn't. It, that's not what happened. Um, I'll, I'll actually quote from this piece. The 2020 primary marked a rare change from this pessimistic outlook for liberals. Trump had scrambled all political prognostications in 2016, leading some observers to believe the electorate cried out for radical change. Populism appeared ascendant. And what I would say is that what we learned is that actually the electorate just was crying out for something. And you saw that a little bit with Trump, but you also saw that with one, Trump's numbers against Hillary Clinton, which I think that we can see now, no matter how many times people try to bring it up, um, that maybe people just didn't really want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Like you saw people, I think there was a couple of days ago, someone was tweeting about like, you know, there was one candidate who did really well in West Virginia and it like Bernie Sanders, his numbers in 2016. And I'm like, I don't know how much that had to do with Bernie Sanders. I think that there was a lot of people who didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. And I think that what we've seen from the Republican Party now is realizing that they can do the exact same things that they wanted to do anyway, but they can just be louder and meaner about it. We've seen um, I wrote a piece in 2020 for Vox, um, essentially about how like the Republican Party just turned Trump into one of their own. He didn't really want to do any of the things that he promised to do, because a lot of the things he promised to do were kind of hard in this illusory, impossible way. Like, 
healthcare for everyone and fixing everything Flag and infrastructure weak those right those were all things that he did say and people kind of sort of liked but it turns out doing all those things is really hard and not doing anything is easy i think steven tellers did an in- interview with me for this and he was essentially like you know the republican party is very good at governing in that if you pa- they pass this tax cuts and there's a lot of administrative deregulation now, that might be not what you voted for the Republican Party to do, but it's what the Republican Party is very good at, and it's what it would prefer to do. And I think that there was a lot of people who read from his uh, 2016 primary win, which I think me- might be more interesting to think about when you're thinking about what the Republican Party looks like. It's that you know his, met- his conservatism didn't really appear to matter, and it just happened that he said things that other people were too hemmed in by what conservatism, quote unquote, looked like or sounded like to say. But it turns out that didn't seem very, that didn't matter to what the Republican Party was going to do. Tim Carney, who's at the Washington Examiner, he was like, you know, he went from courting ex-factory workers to courting suburban housewives and the beautiful voters. None of that required the Republican Party to change anything. They didn't update their platform for the 2020 election. None of this has required the Republican Party to do or say anything different except just be meaner and louder. At no point has, and especially because if you focus on culture war issues that are inherently politically unsolvable, like you cannot pass a law that means that some lady in Seattle can't annoy you. <laughs> and there are a lot of Republicans who they run entire campaigns on like, if I win, someone somewhere won't be able to annoy you anymore. And also to uh, sort of re-up the question I was asking earlier, when you were talking about the modern day GOP in the context of Donald Trump's and the Republican Party's anti-democratic lies, what room is there for shifting the way or tailoring the way we talk about that when you're talking about the objective of your New York Times show? There, I, I mean, I don't think there's any way to find common ground on the issue at the very least. There is no way to find a common ground. I think that there is a way to examine how this came about, but I I think of it in some ways as kind of the, you know, it goes back to one of the OG big lies, which was birtherism. It's funny to talk about something as being an OG big lie when it happened when I was in college, but here we are. And I think that there there are reasons for why people think these things and the motivated reasoning, more importantly. But I think that... And it's important to understand how we got here and why this looks the way it does. But at a certain level, if you have an election that someone lost, that someone was predicted to lose, and that they started saying that they couldn't lose like six months before. I remember, I believe that there was a Federalist piece in September 2020 that was essentially saying that the only way Trump could lose is because of, of election malfeasance, which is like, or, or he could just lose because he's yelling about beautiful voters in Section 230 on the campaign stand. And so that is a way to analyze it. But I think that in terms of trying to figure out how to do something that brings people together on that, I mean, especially because you can tell that there are a lot of Republicans who are well aware that the big lie is bullshit, but they don't want to say it because then they'll get people will get mad at them. And you, you see this routinely. And I think that the important thing there is that there, you can understand why something is happening and you can have a conversation about how it happened. But I think that there's no real place for permitting or to 
especially because you, you get into people using weasel terms of like, well, are you saying that there was nothing weird about this election? And I'm like, it was an election held during a massive pandemic between like one person who kept saying that everything about the election was fraud the whole time. That, that was weird. That was a strange time for us. And I think that the it, it's interesting how much of this has become a sign of allegiance rather than a, like a belief system. On that note, you recently moderated a really interesting conversation about how the press is handling elections and whether it's setting itself up to hand Trump a 2024 win. I was wondering if you see the media repeating its 2016 decisions or has anybody learned anything since then? I think everyone is more mad than they were then, <laughs> which is impressive. The things that are important to learn are that one thing that we learned, we saw in 2016, was that Trump got, I believe, like $2 billion in free airtime because there was a long period of time, if you remember, like the Huffington Post put every Trump story in the entertainment section. Right. Like there was just a long, long time at which people didn't take it seriously. They didn't take it literally or seriously. And I think that there were a lot of people who were saying very early that this isn't, you know, his big opening speech was a clarion call to the worst forces in our history and in our country. And I think the people who wanted to take that seriously were urged against doing so because of their of their own, I think, political needs. There was a sense people were like, oh, he'll be an easier candidate than this person or he will be a better candidate than this person. Or, you know, once we get out of the primary, he'll be the best possible opposition or, you know, we can't take this seriously or maybe other people need to start sounding like this or something like that. Instead of asking, I think, more important questions about how this was happening and why this was happening and what was it about the context that was making this happen. I think that there one thing that about 2016 that I always remember is that like a lot of people just didn't vote at all. I think that that's something, you know, 2020 was an extraordinarily high turnout election. 2016 was high turnout as well, but there were still a host of people who just didn't vote at all. Or, you know, historically in change elections, people vote in such a way that that is very much about how about how they feel and not less about how they think. I think that the media has learned a lesson. I don't think it's learned enough of a lesson because I think our media is, there are a lot of people who wish that they were sports reporters. They are not. Um, and they keep doing horse race coverage for a, for there are no horses. And I am hopeful that people will understand that understanding why something is happening and how it is happening might even be more important than what is happening. On that note, we're going to have to unfortunately end this conversation a little bit early, but Jane, Come back anytime. It's a pleasure talking to you. Come back and we'll do an entire episode just on the beautiful suburbs and exurbs in the Cincinnati, northern Kentucky area. But for now, Fever Dreams listeners, uh, please follow Jane Coaston, including at her New York Times podcast, The Argument. Jane, have a great week. Thank you so much. And now, Fever Dreams listeners, we move on to our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, in which we introduce you to something batshit that's going on in your universe today that you may not believe is actually occurring, but sadly, it actually is. Kelly Weil, on this podcast, we love cats and we love hoaxes, 
you got something for us today that combines the two in a delicious onslaught. What's going on? Swin, would you believe me if I said that uh, local schools are, (laughs) at this point, yes, no reservations. Local schools are uh, setting aside gender-neutral bathrooms with litter boxes for children who identify as cats. Yeah, totally believe it. The answer should no, be no. No, no, the answer is yes. No, you shouldn't believe that. Well, it's you believe that, and so do some super agro parents and also Republican legislators in Michigan. They're going ballistic after falling for what seems to be a hoax about a school providing gender-neutral litter boxes for students who identify as furries. And for listeners who do not no one love the furry fandom like me. It's a subculture for people who like to dress up in animal costumes, kind of anthropomorphic animals, like um, sort of like the Chuck E. Cheese thing or a college mascot, that kind of thing. There's a general misconception that this is purely a sex thing. It's not. That is different. No, no. Furries, furries are rad. I, I think I'm sort of the Daily Beast uh, furry correspondent, so I feel very protective of the fandom as mostly not a sex thing. Right. You've written about the historic divide between Antifa furries and Nazi furries. That's right. It is a pitched and ongoing battle. And I will say that most furries have pretty good politics. Nazi furries, kind of a fringe. But (laughs) in uh, Michigan's Midland Public Schools, there was a rumor that the district was providing bathrooms for children who identify as cats. This all kicked off at a uh, school board meeting, as so many things do, last month, when a mother came up and claimed that there was, quote, part of an agenda that is being pushed through our schools is just my opinion, but somewhat nefarious when it comes to some of the activities. And, of course, this being about allegations of gender-neutral bathrooms that have something to do with cat-identifying children. She later told the New York Times that, quote, We parents aren't sure what our schools are up to. That's the problem. Accountability is not a crime. So this went from a weird little tidbit on a a recorded school board meeting to something that was last week picked up by the head of the Michigan GOP, who shared the video on Facebook and wrote, kids who identify as, quote, furries get a litter box in the school bathroom. Parent heroes will take back our schools. Okay, so this isn't a nobody. This is the literal head, the chief, the head honcho of the Michigan Republican Party. That's right. And so you probably see like a thousand of these weird rumors in your school Facebook pages or your local radio station, that kind of thing. And usually common sense prevails, but no, this went right to the top. And this is the head of the Michigan GOP complaining about furries and calling on parents to uh, to seize the schools, I think, over the furry menace. And so the parent who was on that video, or, or the attendee of the meeting, I should say, were they graphically talking about student furries and litter boxes claiming that they'd seen one because you were (laughs) quoting the thing about the agenda and the nefarious activities before i'll admit i've not seen the video like was this built on anything outlandish that the person was claiming so like so many of these rumors of course no one has seen the litter box there's no photo of the litter box it's it's just it sounds like honestly you want my 
my theory is this is something like that originated from fortune inside yeah from fortune <laughs> i was gonna say like some kind of high school inside joke right you know kids, kids are trolls that's that's part of the growing up experience you know you start a rumor that you're two science teachers are married or something like that. Kids are bored. Like it's, right. it's a, it's a funny joke. Um, and listen, not, not to be the designated furry correspondent, but I think I am. Furries don't even use litter boxes. They use the <laughs> toilet just like everybody else. Oh my God. Like it, even if someone identified as a furry, which who cares, what does a litter box have to do with it? You think, do you think they're actually turning into cats? Like it still have the same, bodily functions. I think what this really is, is a kid's hoax gone kind of viral, but it's been co-opted by this grievance-driven movement that is just trying to find excuses to insert itself into schools even more. There's all this narrative on the right now about their new line is transparency. We want transparency in the schools. Right. If you can't see what your kid's public school teacher is doing at all times, at all times, it's anti-transparency as opposed to an infringement on an actual employee's, I don't know, rights not to be hounded out of existence because they picked a color of chalk that the parents didn't like. That's right. I mean, listen, if if your 25-year-old social studies teacher is not wearing a body camera to ensure that she is not talking about critical race theory to your uh, to your 10-year-old, then that's not transparency. Then we need to improve that. Um, <laughs> it's it, so it's and so now this is extending so far that they're demanding transparency to know more about what students are doing in the toilet to make sure that there there's no litter boxes in there. There's no minors. Yes. Just children. Just absolute children. <laughs> and and they don't see this as creepy. No, of course not. Well, I mean, furries are a ripe target for people who want to have some kind of sex panic thing going on because people assume that furries are doing like weird animal sex when, as discussed, they're really not. I frankly would rather go to class with a furry than somebody who's going to get up at a school board meeting and, and, you know, scream about Antifa in the class. Like it's, I, I know, I know my people. The, the other thing that resonates with me in this is this is kind of, they don't say it outright, but there is some kind of anti-trans rhetoric. Of here, course. Right? Of course. Oh, it's the gender neutral litter box. Okay. Like when I was in school, we had the girls litter box and the boys litter box and facts were facts. Like there's, there's some real leaning on that gender neutral uh, term there. And all this reminds me of is just a callback to anti-gay efforts in year, years past. And this reminds me of when people were saying, oh, if two gay people can get married, then someone's going to marry a dog. That never happened. There are no furries using gender neutral bathrooms in school, at least on any uh, widespread scale that people should be worried about. It's pure likening the LGBT community to animals, except this seems to be from a genuinely funny high school hoax. I mean, that may not have happened, but we did create a liberal future in which mainstream political reporters such as yourself feel empowered to defend furries. Absolutely. And I'll do it till I die. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.